you have your Bibles, grab them. And we're going to be all over the place, so the uh, scriptures will also be on the screen this morning. Uh, Last year, my wife, who, if you don't know her, loves all things city, clean, comfortable, air-conditioned, indoors, bug-free, no dirt, loves all that things. That, That same wife came to me and said, Brent, I got an idea. What if we got a camper so we could go camping? And I said, where did you go and where happened to my wife? Because I love camping. But And so after I got over my initial shock and realized that it was her and not an alien impersonation of her, uh, we, we bought a, a little pop-up camper from uh, my sister um, uh, for pretty cheap. The uh, camper we knew was going to need some, some work, some love, a little TLC. We were going to need to paint some cabinets, you know, uh, do a little couple things here and there. What we didn't realize was that the whole thing was a ride. And we were going to have to uh, uh, rip everything out, the floors, the cabinets, the walls, Literally everything that could be ripped out that wasn't metal, we ripped out. Uh, I have a picture of me standing in the middle with my, um, my feet are on the concrete on my driveway, and I'm standing in the middle of the thing because there's no floor. Uh, so we ripped everything out, and we had to rebuild it from the ground up. Completely gut it, completely rebuild it. And the amazing thing when you do something like that is always the finished product. Right? It's always when you, when you look at the, the thing that you've built, the thing that you've restored, the thing that you've redone, and you look at the before pictures because you've kind of forgotten what it used to look like, right? And, and you go back and go, oh my gosh, yeah, I remember now. And you look at the before pictures, and then you look at it now, and you're amazed because it looks completely new, it's completely restored, and it's amazing that you could make something like this out of something that seemed like it was broken. Something that before looked like, Maybe we should just scrap it, just throw it away, just trash it. Now it is truly in awe and wonder of what it could look like now made new. You know, I think the reason we love like the the fixer-upper shows, the reason we love Chip and Joanna Gaines and and all the magic that they can pull to to, to restore a home uh, or people who restore old cars or old instruments, I think the the reason we're fascinated by that fascinated by before and after pictures when when you see an outdated room and and we take a picture before and and after and we're like mesmerized by what it's become i think it's because deeply ingrained in us is this ancient story that is being told about a god who comes to make all things new who comes to restore what has been broken We love seeing bathrooms go from gross to amazing because deep down we wonder, can that sort of transformation happen to me? Sometimes we look at the before and after pictures of our life, and even the the current pictures or the after pictures, so to speak, of our life just seems to be getting worse. Things seem to just be going downhill. Sometimes we just feel broken and beat up and Helpless to fix ourselves or pull ourselves up out of the muck. And we feel like trash, useless and unwanted. We feel like Sporky from Toy Story 4. I'm trash. This morning I want to show you 
that the Easter story is more than just another miracle of Jesus. And it is more than just a happy ending for Jesus. And it is more than something we just get together to celebrate once a year. But rather, the resurrection of Jesus is our hope that we too can be restored. The resurrection of Jesus is hope for us. It is our hope too that we can be restored. That, that our after pictures could actually be better than our before pictures. That our lives, no matter how broken, no matter how useless we think they are, the resurrection shows us that our current state doesn't have to be the end of our stories. I want us to see three things this morning. Three ways that we are restored by and through the power of the resurrection. So first, what is going on in this resurrection? This resurrection story, what is happening? Well, the fairy tales of old tell us stories about how seemingly impossible things done through magic. They tell stories of Sleeping Beauty, who by true love's kiss could wake her from an eternal sleep. They tell us about how the strongest of spells might even raise the dead. But what we have in actual history is the thing that all fairy tales point to. It is what all legends point to. It is the story to which all other stories have their origin. A story more grand and more magical than any fairy tale. A story that is actually true. That is actually literal and historical. You see, we don't just have a Savior who could go and raise the dead. We have a Savior who could raise himself from the dead. And that is a power altogether different. You see, on Friday night, Jesus was crucified. He was tortured and he was killed. He wasn't knocked out. He wasn't on the edge of life. He wasn't almost dead. His spirit had left his body. He wasn't breathing. His heart had stopped and the blood no longer flowed. He was dead. They laid his body in a borrowed tomb and wrapped his, his, him, his body in grave clothes. The disciples and the followers of Jesus now are freaking out. They didn't know what to do. They, should they run and hide? Should, was it all over? Should they get, go back to their old jobs? Was all of this that they'd given their life to for the past three years all pointless? Was the Messiah that they had hoped for dead? All hope seemed lost. And on Sunday morning, when the women who had followed Jesus came to the tomb with perfumes ready to anoint his body to, to get rid of the odor, they come walking up the path prepared to, to mourn the passing of their would-be Savior and wonder of all wonders, the stone was rolled away. And they get there and, and nobody thought that there would be no body. And yet, they were looking at an empty tomb. And they don't understand yet what had happened. They thought maybe someone had stolen his body or maybe the Romans had moved the body somewhere else. And they were heartbroken because they couldn't mourn him. And yet they turn around and they see an angel and the angel speaks to them. And they said, why do you weep? He is not here for he is risen. Imagine the shock and the wonder on their faces as they take off running back toward the house to the other disciples. To tell them the news. But I want you to back up a moment. Back up a moment. Friday night, when they laid his dead corpse in the tomb, he laid there all night. Saturday, 
his dead corpse still laid in the tomb, growing cold and decomposition beginning to set in. The odor from his dead corpse beginning to stink, which is why they were bringing the perfumes. But early Sunday morning, he was still dead at some point. He, he was still dead and rotting at some point on Sunday morning when everything began to change. You see, at some point on Sunday morning, Jesus decided, this dead Jesus decided, it is time for my heart to beat again. He decided it is time for my blood to begin to flow. He decided it is time for my lungs to fill back up with air. Jesus decided, okay, it's time to come back to life. And when he decided that it was time, death could not hold him back. Death couldn't stop him. His rotting corpse couldn't stop him. The problem of his dead and useless organs could not stop him. They were not obstacles to Jesus. Satan could not stop him. Hell could not stop him. When Jesus decided it was time, he simply came back to life. He took off his grave clothes, and like the gentleman he is, he folded them and laid them on a rock and walked out of the tomb. Jesus turned back the clock on death. He turned back the clock on his body that had been beaten to a bloody pulp. He turned back the clock of the torn pieces of flesh that had fallen off of him, the holes that were in his body. He rewinded it. And all of the wounds and all of the blood loss and all of the damage was reversed and undone and he was restored. Jesus unwound The spell of death until death was no longer true of him. Until the wounds were gone and he was alive and he was restored. When we ask the question, what is going on in the resurrection? The first thing we see is Jesus restored his very own body. Jesus restored his very own body. His very own life. He took what was broken, what was trash, what was decomposing, what was dead, and he restored it. He fixed it. He made it new again. He didn't say, well, you know what? They kind of messed this body up. They kind of tore it to shreds. They've, they've destroyed it. I'll just make a new one. That's not what he did. He didn't, which he could have done, right? He could have made a new body, he, 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 but he doesn't do that. Instead, he takes that broken, messed up, bloody, shredded body, and he makes it whole again. He restores it. The picture before was a broken, bloodied, pump mess, hardly recognizable as a human body. But the after picture was Jesus, glorious, healthy, strong, beautiful, and perfect. But what does that mean for us? Is this just a happy ending for the story of Jesus? Is this just a thing that Christians believe? No, this is everything. This is literally the linchpin of everything. You see, Jesus wasn't just healing himself. No, his resurrection was the beginning of a greater restoration, a greater resurrection, the restoration of all things. It began a project to make all things new. You see, the resurrection is the beginning of Jesus restoring the physical world to its rightful state. That's what he's doing. In the resurrection, it is the beginning of him restoring the physical world to its rightful state. When you restore something, it means you take it back to its former glory. 
You take it back to what it was when it was first created. You remove the rust and the broken parts and return it to its former glory. If you go out and find an old 69 Mustang that it's got flat tires and the paint's faded and there's rust everywhere and fenders falling off and the seats are ripped and the engine doesn't work and you go and you and you sand it down and you repaint it and you repolster the seats and you fix the tires and you fix the engine, you go from having a, a 69 Mustang that looked like you should just scrap it and get what you can out of it to a car that would turn heads when it's restored. And that is exactly what God is doing in the whole world. To all who would trust in him, he is returning the world to its former glory. Well, that begs the question, right? Well, what is the world's former glory? What is our former glory? Well, before sin entered the world, we enjoyed everlasting life. We didn't get old. Our hips didn't start aching. Our knees didn't start aching. We didn't get sick. We didn't get cancer. We didn't die. There were no hurricanes. There were no tornadoes. And there were no pandemics. There were no bad phone calls giving us those diagnoses that we did not want to hear. There were no rushing to the hospital. There was no ambulances. There were no miscarriages. There was no crime. The world was right and perfect. Jesus created this perfect world, and we made a mess of it. And it would be easy enough for God, for Jesus to say, you know what, let's just throw this world away and start over. Let's just get rid of this one that y'all messed up, and we'll just make a new better one. It would have been easy enough for him to do that, to start over, but that's not what he's doing. He has come to make all things new. To restore what has been lost. And so the resurrection of Jesus is this ushering in of this restoration project. The resurrection shows us that God can take what is broken and make it whole again. The resurrection shows us that God can take what is dead and make it alive again. That God doesn't need to throw away broken things and start over because God is in the business of restoring what was lost. God isn't making new things, he's making all things new. You see, for those who place their faith and trust in Christ, we, we're broken, y'all. Like, we're broken, right? Like, we're broken, we're beat down, we're hurt, we're sinful, we're slaves to sin. We get old, we get cancer, we get hurt, we, we, we get Alzheimer's, we have miscarriages, things are happening that are bad. We've, we have to bury our loved ones in the ground. But this resurrection is signaling that all of that is coming to an end. That doesn't have to be our story anymore. That just as Jesus turned back the clocks on his own broken body and made himself whole again, so too, too, too will he turn back the clock on this entire world and everyone who trusts in him will be made whole again and restored. Remember what Jesus told Mary and Martha right before he goes and raises their brother Lazarus from the dead in John eleven twenty five. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me... Though he die, yet shall he live. You know the number one reason people say they don't believe in God? Surveys say the number one reason people don't believe in God is because of what we call the problem of evil. That is, they have experienced some sort of pain, some sort of tragedy, some sort of suffering. Their mom died too young. Their childhood was difficult. Their, uh, their child got cancer. Their best friend got in a car wreck and died. And they say, I cannot believe in a God who would allow this pain and hurt and suffering in my life. And they are right. 
that those feelings and that pain and that hurt and that sorrow is real. They're right that those are, there's one word to call those things, and it is evil. But they are wrong that God doesn't care. And they are wrong that God isn't doing anything about it. You see, we can know that God cares because God came to earth. He entered our pain. Jesus knows what it is like to feel pain and hurt. Jesus knows what it is like to lose a father at a young age. Jesus knows what it is like to lose a friend to sickness and have to bury him. Jesus knows what it is like to get sick and to be betrayed, to be tortured, to be mocked, and to be killed. Jesus sympathizes with those pains, with those hurts. He knows what you are walking through in the midst of your sorrows. Like he really gets it deep down in his bone. He knows. He understands. He's walked in your shoes. He's felt our suffering, endured our hardships. And he has taken the whole curse that is over this world on himself on the cross. And he buried that curse in his own body in the ground. You see, God cares about your suffering. Because he's not only entered it and experienced it, but he's come to end it. We know that God cares about our suffering, not just because he's entered it and experienced it, but because he's come to end it. He bore that curse in his body, and when they raised him from the dead, he defeated that curse. And he left all that stuff in the ground. The scriptures say, oh death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Jesus came to defeat our suffering and to create a world where we never had to suffer again. And not only that, he came to reverse all of it. If you're a Lord of the Rings fan, you'll remember that great scene at the end when the the battle is over and Samwise Gamgee is there and he is mourning the loss of so many who have fallen in battle. And he's mourning the loss of his friend Gandalf who died some time earlier. And he sees up on the horizon someone that must only be a ghost to him. Because it couldn't be anything else. He sees his friend Gandalf the wizard coming. And when he, re- when he goes and he touches them, he says, Is everything sad coming untrue? Tolkien brilliantly writes that line because that is exactly what Jesus is doing. Jesus is making everything sad come untrue. He is turning back the clocks, making all of our worst pain, all of the loss, all of the death turn back and we live again. God will not abandon any of his children to the grave because though we die, yet shall we live. You see, when Jesus was on the cross, you remember one of the last things he yelled out? He's up there dying and he says, it is finished. He says, it is finished. He doesn't say, I am finished. Why? Because on the cross, his work was done. But he wasn't done. His work was done, but he himself wasn't done. And if Jesus' story doesn't end on the cross or in the tomb, well, that means if you trust in him as your Savior, your story doesn't end in cancer. Your story doesn't end at the grave either. Your story doesn't end in sadness. It doesn't end in sorrow. No, your story keeps going. You see, there is a before picture of your life. There is a before picture full of hurt and brokenness and pain. But the after picture of you is a picture of you gloriously raised from the dead. Mind, body, soul, healed, made new, completely restored. And on that day, when everything sad becomes untrue, when we are restored to our former glory that we never got to taste because it was robbed from us on that day, 
We will be restored, and we will know what it means to live in a world that we were always meant to inhabit, to live in a world where everything is right. The ending we are headed for, the ending for which all fairy tales point, the happily ever after, it actually exists. It's in fairy tales because it's true. It's the place we've always dreamed and longed for. You see, the resurrection isn't just a happy ending for Jesus. The resurrection assures a happy ending for us too. The resurrection isn't just a happy ending in the story and the tale of Jesus. No, the resurrection assures a happy ending for us too. You know, as a, as a pastor, I do a lot of hospital visits and a lot of funerals. And I can tell you there are two sorts of hospital rooms and two sorts of funerals. I've been in both. You can walk into some hospital rooms where there's no hope and everyone's saying their last goodbyes. And there is this thickness to the air. No one knows what to say. Everyone's crying. And there's just hopelessness. And that translates to the funeral a few days later. We all make up something nice to say about the person, and we just put out of our mind the idea of what's happened next, and we just don't think about it. And then you walk into some hospital rooms, and everyone's saying their goodbyes, and there's tears, and there's sadness, but man, there's a lightness to the air. There is like a, a joy beneath the surface. There's this hope that overshadows the gloom. And that translates to the funeral where there's laughter in the midst of tears. There's joy in the midst of sorrow. There's hope in the midst of despair. And man, those are altogether different. Those are altogether different. My question for you is, which funeral are you going to have? When, when they lay you in a casket someday, is it going to be one of those funerals where are like, hey man, let's just not think about what happens next. Let's just put that out of our minds because if I were to embrace thinking about that, there's nothing but sorrow. Or are you going to have one of those that's like, man, let's get up here, let's talk about them. Let's talk about how much we love them, share memories, share stories, laugh, cry together. Because there's this great hope that one day Jesus is going to walk up to their grave and say, live. Going to say, get up. And the casket door is going to fly off and your body, you're going to come out alive again. Which one are you? Your before picture right now might be a rough one. But Jesus has promised an after picture that will blow your socks off. So first, we see that the Easter story promises this physical restoration, this physical making all things new. But it promises more than just that. It also promises a, re a relational restoration. You see, the resurrection is proof that we can be restored in our relationship with God. It is proof that we can be restored in our relationship with God. I want us to take a few moments and I want us to see the Easter story through the eyes of Peter. Peter was one of Jesus' closest disciples. And let's look at a moment and see Peter. This is a Peter a few hours before Jesus was arrested. Matthew chapter 26, here's what it says. Then Jesus said to them, to all the disciples, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter answered him, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. That's Peter for you. <laughs> Always jumping in there, putting his foot in his mouth. I wouldn't, everyone else might abandon you, I won't. 
And Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. So Jesus predicts that the disciples are going to scatter tonight. They're all going to deny him. They're going to run away. And Jesus being the over, or, or Peter being the overconfident guy says, Jesus, I'm never going to do that. I will die with you if, if I have to. No matter what happens, I will be by your side even if I have to die. Peter always talks a big game, and I'm sure he believed it, but here's what happens next. Jesus is arrested. He's taken off. In verse 54 it says, Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire, remember that, kindled a fire, in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But Peter denied it, saying, Woman, I don't know him. That's one. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. That's two. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. That's three. Now listen to this. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter, remembering the saying of the Lord, how he said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Can you imagine this moment? That after Peter just promised, I will go to my death with you if I must. I will never deny you. This moment where he's done that, he's denied him. And Peter meets Jesus' eyes off in the distance. Jesus looks up and they make eye contact. As the rooster crows, looking into his eyes, knowing he failed him. Knowing all that big game he just talked didn't matter a thing. And that he took the coward's way out and failed his Lord. And not only did he deny him being a disciple, but the gospel accounts record that he denied even knowing him at all. I don't even know this man. He betrayed him. He let him down. And he left him to fend against this mob, this sham trial, and to deal with the shame all alone. The next few days had to be miserable for Peter, right? Like, not, not only was his Messiah and his Lord and his Savior and all these, his teacher, his friend, not only now was he dead, but the last thing Jesus remembered about Peter was that he betrayed him. He denied him when things got hard. Oh, how that must have ate Peter up. Oh, the, how the guilt and the shame must have crippled Peter. That's something you and I know well, right? It's something we have experience with. Like, we know what it's like to fail people. We know what it's like to fail God, to betray our promises we've made to God. We know what it's like to let him down, to hurt someone else we love, to fail them. We know what it's like to feel guilt and shame and, and, and the pity of self-loathing loathing that follows. We know what that's like. The last verse describes the feeling well. Peter went out and wept bitterly. Because what else are you going to do at this point? But weep bitterly. 
Peter continues to, to wallow in that guilt and shame Friday night, all day Saturday. And then on Sunday morning, when the unexpected happens, the women come running from the house saying, he's alive, he's alive, he's alive. And you got to think that Peter and the guys are all like, what, what are they talking about? Who's alive? What, 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 do you, what do you mean? Right? But then they run to the tomb, and Peter and John are racing to the tomb. And they, they get there, and they see for themselves that the tomb is empty. And eventually they meet Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, and on two separate occasions, they meet him. And they're like, man, he came back. This is great. But now there's this elephant in the room, right? There's this massive elephant in the room. Jesus is alive. He's raised from the dead. He's back. He was the Messiah. He was the Savior. But this elephant of Peter's betrayal, his denial, looms large between them. You've experienced that. Like, we know what it's like to have an unspoken tension and a friendship you know, when you both of you know there's something wrong, but no one's talking about it, what's going on between Peter and Jesus? Peter so far has just ignored the feeling. He's running head first like he always does, not looking back, just into Jesus. Okay, let's move forward. Let's go. But Jesus has other plans. Fast forward a few days. Peter and the disciples are out on a fishing boat. They had been out for a while, and they hadn't caught any fish. And out of nowhere on the shore, a man comes. They don't recognize him as Jesus at first. And he tells them, hey, cast your nets on the right side of the boat. And immediately their nets were filled with fish. And then because Jesus had done that miracle when they first met him, they, they, that's him. They, that's it. they recognize him as Jesus. Peter jumps out of the boat, swims, most people think about 100 yards to shore, leaves everyone else to deal with the fish, and Peter runs toward Jesus. Everyone else catches up, and Jesus says, let's have breakfast. And Peter's all giddy. He's there. Jesus, you're alive. Yes. And they sit around a fire pit. They have breakfast together. Everything seems good. Everything seems, it's back to normal. But the tension in Peter's mind and heart is still there. That unresolved tension. There's something broken between him and Jesus. And as soon as breakfast is over, Jesus exposes the elephant. And he does it not to hurt Peter, but to heal him. Jesus brings this up subtly. He doesn't just come out and say, Peter, I told you you'd screw up. No, he brings it up subtly. Three ways. First, there's a fire. They're sitting by a fire eating breakfast. Remember I told you, remember on the night Peter betrayed Jesus, it was by a fire. Smells can take us back to moments of the past. And John adds this detail in this account. So that it takes us back to that moment of Peter's greatest failure. It takes Peter back there as well. And then Jesus asks Peter a question in front of all the other disciples in John 21. He says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? That's got to be a startling question in and of itself. Do you love me more than these guys love me? Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And you can hear what's behind the question. Because you promised that if all of them fall away, you never would. You love me. Yes, I love you. That's one. But he asks Simon, again, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. That's two. And he asks another question. Simon, do you love me? That's three. And all of a sudden, Peter gets it. The Bible says Peter was grieved the third time he asked. But not only the fire, not only the three questions, but he calls him Simon. He calls him Simon. Simon was his given name. 
But Jesus had given him a new name. He had called him Peter, Petros, the rock. But in calling him Simon, he has taken him back to who he was before he had met Jesus. He's essentially saying, I called you the rock, but you haven't really been acting like a rock, have you? Why does Jesus make Peter relive this worst moment of the failure of his life? It was to show him, no matter how big, how often, or how much you have failed me, Peter, I love you and I forgive you. He is helping Peter to finally understand why it is he's come. That Jesus didn't come to bring an army to drive out the Romans. He didn't come to build a kingdom right now. He came to deal with our sin and our failures and wipe away our biggest betrayals. The miracle of the fish that he just performs takes Peter back to the day he met Jesus. Because he did that same miracle. And he's showing him, Peter, from day one, I knew you would deny me. I knew you would fail me. And yet still I called you to follow me. And yet still I just gave my life for you. Peter, for the first time in his life, understands Jesus came to save him and redeem him, to restore him and to forgive him. He understands for the first time that the determining factor in his relationship with God is not his past, but Christ's past. It is not his record but Jesus' record for him. And that is true of every one of us. Guys, the resurrection of Jesus functions like a receipt. You know when you go to Costco and you check out and you got to wait in that line afterward so they can write the smiley face on your receipt? To check to make sure you've actually bought everything that's in your cart? Well, the resurrection is the receipt saying this is proof that God has accepted what Jesus has done on the cross. It's paid in full. You can go. It's paid in full. It means all of our sins and failures and mistakes, every one of them have been paid for. You're in the clear. Your sins are gone. This text is a reminder to Peter and to us that we might fail once and twice and three times. Shoot, we might fail a hundred. But again and again and again, Jesus is faithful to love us, to restore us, and to forgive us again and again and again. The resurrection means your sins have been buried in a tomb and they're gone forever. I have a good friend um, who cannot bring himself, cannot bring himself to come to Jesus because the failures of his past are too big that he thinks they're too big for God to ever forgive him. He thinks he is too far gone, too broken, and too much time has passed, that his tins are too big. And there, and there are some of you in this room that are like that. You think, you know what, it's too late. And the enemy is whispered into your heart, it's too late, your sins are too big, you're too far gone, it's too late for you. But let me tell you something really clearly and really simply. Jesus is infinite. He is infinite. And his sacrifice on the cross is infinite. Your sins are teeny tiny compared to the infiniteness of his sacrifice on the cross for you. His blood is limitless for you. Jesus forgives Peter, and Jesus can forgive you. He doesn't begrudgingly come to you and say, hey, you know what? If you straighten up, if you get it right, if you fix everything, if you act just right, then I'll forgive you. No, he don't do that crap. No, Jesus is eager to forgive you. Jesus is chomping at the bit to bring you to him. Jesus is eager 
to lavish on you mercy and healing and restoration and forgiveness to bring you home to him. When we come into this world, our relationship with God is broken and cut off by sin, cut off by our mistakes. But Jesus came so that we would never be defined by our mistakes, but we would be defined by our new family that we find in him. You see, he comes so that he can take all of our failures, all of our addictions, all of our mess, bear it in his own body and bury it in the ground where it never sees the light of day again. See, the resurrection is proof that we can finally be restored to God like you actually can. You don't have to clean up. You don't have to get your act together. You contribute something to your salvation, and it's the sin that needs forgiving. You're not going to get rid of it on your own. He's got to do it. And the beautiful thing is when God forgives us and restores us to him, man, like Nathan said after we finished singing, man, we get restored to each other. It makes this whole new kind of community, a new family where all past wounds and past hurts can now, we have the power to forgive and to move forward together. Because of the resurrection, our bodies will be restored, the physical world will be restored, our relationship with God has been restored, and finally, and quickly, the resurrection restores our purpose. Why is it that we find Peter fishing? Why is it that we find him in this passage fishing? Some people, most people believe it's because he didn't know what else to do. He thought because he had denied Jesus and betrayed him, he had to go back to his old job. He had failed, and so all he could do was plan B of his life and go be a fisherman again. But Jesus does not stand by and watch as his friend lives a plan B life. No, Jesus reenacts the miracle when he first called Peter to follow him. He makes all these fish, and he asks him these three questions, do you love me? And after, I, I admitted this first, when Jesus says, do you love me? Peter says, yes, I love you. And then he says, feed my sheep. Do you love me? Yes, tend my lambs. Do you love me? Yes, feed my sheep. What was Jesus doing? Not only was he forgiving Peter, he was restoring Peter to the purpose to which he called him. Peter, you can be the rock again. You can be the fisher of men again. You can lead again. Peter didn't have to go back to fishing to plan B. The resurrection of Jesus means we get to be restored and our purpose can be restored. All of our failures and mistakes don't mean we've got to live a settled plan B life. Your failures don't determine your future. Peter's calling was restored. Simon, you are my rock. Go feed my sheep, he says. Your failures don't mean God's done with you. Your failures don't mean you have to live plan B. Your failures are simply what we bring to the table for God to overcome to build something beautiful out of. Your failures are simply the before picture. And he's going to make an after one. You remember God took Moses, a murderer, and he made with a stammering tongue, and he made him the mouthpiece of God and a prophet. God took Thomas, a doubter, and he made him a great confessor of the faith. God took Peter, an impulsive failure, and he made him a rock on which he built the church. And God can take you, broken as you are, restore you, and use you mightily with a purpose. You don't have to be on plan B. Your mistakes and your failures don't put you on plan B. The resurrection says you're always on plan A. In 1978, at, uh, uh, at Laney High School, there was about 50 kids who were trying out for the basketball team. There was one kid in particular who had been working really hard, and he thought he could make the team. He was 5'10", he was a sophomore, and he thought he was really going to make the team this year, but after tryouts, he found out that he didn't make it. And he said he was so embarrassed, and he went home, and he locked himself in his room, and he cried. 
His name was Michael Jordan. But that's not how we remember Michael Jordan. When we think of Michael Jordan, to us, he's MJ. He's his airness. He's the GOAT, the leader of the Toon Squad, the best player of the, the 90s Bulls, six championship rings, better than LeBron. That's how I get you to talk? Okay. Michael Jordan's failures didn't define him. And in the same way, when we think of the Apostle Peter, we, we don't think of him as Simon, son of John, the fisherman. We think of Peter as Peter the rock, the leader of the church, the writer of some of the New Testament letters who preached to thousands, who defied the Roman Empire, was crucified upside down for it. He wasn't defined by his failures, and you don't have to be either. The resurrection of Jesus is for you so that your failures and your mistakes and your sins can be laid to rest and you don't have to be defined by them any longer. I imagine for the rest of his life, every time Peter heard the rooster crow, he was reminded of the worst moment of his life when he failed Jesus. But I think he was also reminded about how much God loved him despite his failures. How God restored him and loved him all the way to the grave and back. Michael's before picture. Peter's before picture. Your before picture looks pretty bad. But our after picture, our pictures after Jesus gets a hold of us, your jaw will hit the floor. Because the one who left heaven to came to earth for you, the one who lived a perfect life for you, the one who was betrayed and mocked and scorned for you, the one who was crucified, who took the anger and wrath of God for you, the one who defeated Satan for you, the one who conquered death for you, he has come to restore you to a glory you couldn't imagine. Do you want great hope? of a restored body in a physical world? Do you want a great hope of a restored relationship with the creator of the universe, God? Do you want a restored purpose in your life? Do you want an after picture that will take your breath away? These are not fairy tales. They are more than true. And if you want those today, behold a crucified and risen Savior. Behold an empty tomb. Look to Jesus and make him your king and your story will be forever changed. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning celebrating that Jesus is not dead, but he is alive, risen from the dead. And that gives us great hope. Father, for those in this room who do not know you, who are far from you, I pray you give them the strength this morning to come and talk with me or someone in their life and say, I think I'm ready to have an honest conversation about Jesus. And what it means to follow him. Don't act like you got to clean up first. Fix your mistakes first. The resurrection shows us that God can fix all mistakes. He can take bloody corpses and make them glorious. He can take your mess and make it glorious too. I'm going to stand over here to the left while we sing this last song. And if I could pray with you, if I could show you how it will lead you to follow Jesus, I would be honored to do such. If I could pray with you about anything, I'd be honored to. Or let's just stand and sing this song to Jesus, our King. God, we love you so much. Give us the strength to respond the way we need. In Christ's name we pray all people said. Let's stand together.